Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. Today's episode features a recording taken of an online conversation focused on the newest edition of the quarterly essay, number 89, titled The Wires That Bind, Electrification and Community Renewal, penned by Saul Griffith. In this edition, inventor, engineer and visionary Griffith reveals the world that awaits us if we make the most of Australia's energy future. Griffith was interviewed by Simon Holmes Accord, an Australian business and political activist, and the convener of Climate 200. Here's Simon to introduce Saul Griffith. Thanks a lot, Nico, and thank you very much, everyone who's joining us tonight. I too would like to acknowledge that I'm calling in from the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation, and uh, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Great. It's a real honour to be on tonight. I've Saul's crossed my radar. I was thinking back about 14 years ago, I saw a TED talk that Saul gave on Makani Power, an elegant, interesting idea for how to generate large amounts of renewable energy from robotically piloted kites. Cool to see that. And then um, some of you will have heard of Instructables, great user-generated content website where you can go and people, people can say, this is something I've built and this is how you can build one too. Saul was a founder of that. I didn't, I didn't know at the time, but I've certainly benefited. You know, anyone with a, an inventive child will find tons and tons of interesting projects you can, you can make there. But I had no idea. I learned recently that Saul was involved in Monkey Electric. And for years, I rode a bike to and from my work with bright flashing lights in the wheels that stopped me getting squashed by cars. And Saul was a part of that. Saul's been an inventor building fun and practical things for a very long time. More recently, become quite well-known for his crossover into advising some of the biggest names in the world, in fact, advising the Biden government on their Inflation Reduction Act and setting this vision through his organisation, Rewiring America. So it was one of those Australians we lose to the brain drain, but the most amazing thing happened in 2020, Australia benefited from the reverse brain drain. We had a whole bunch of Australians move back. So do you want to, can you start by telling us how, how is it that Australia brought you back? I was one year short of having spent half my life not in Australia. So it was sort of on my radar to come back and spend some time with my parents. But actually, I had rented a house in Washington, D.C. that I was meant to move into in March because my co-founder at Rewiring America, Alex Lasky, and I were going to walk the halls of Washington for a year trying to get more climate action out of the Democrats. But obviously, March 2020 was when the COVID lockdowns began. So we got locked down in our tiny house in San Francisco. The house We were building a new house in San Francisco that was still locked and not finished in construction because San Francisco was famous at not letting you build things. Uh, we were 10 years into the construction project. And we all got fed up a little bit, really, with the COVID situation in the US. We could see schools that were open just across the Pacific, <laughs> somewhere to put our children. So my wife and I relocated a little bit by luck to just north of Wollongong, Thoreau and Austin. And as soon as my wife got here, she was sold and the kids are happier. And then... I guess to tie it to tonight's topic, having been doing all the work in the US on climate and the Build Back Better thing that became the Inflation Reduction Act, realised that actually Australia was poised to go sooner and go harder on the climate transition. And there was a significant global opportunity in helping Australia demonstrate to the world how to get to zero emissions faster. 
And so that began with my writing the big switch. Compared to you, I, I, I shouldn't even say this, but I have started to meddle in politics. <laughs> and then the publishing of this quarterly essay, which is really to try and translate the very abstract climate actions and climate policies we hear about into community actions, because ultimately it's all about what we do in our communities that's going to determine our outcome. In the essay, you approach these challenges, the political challenges and climate as an engineer. You see the grid as being fundamental for us doing our part for climate action, but you see the grid as a huge machine, the largest machine in the country, in fact. Do you want to explain what do you mean by that? During the the work we were doing with the US, I was actually asked to present to the US Senate caucus because of my expertise in the energy system. I realized that talking about the machines, not about abstract policies, was very useful because actually climate change itself now will transpire in the lifetime of your car, your water heaters and your stoves. And so that made it very concrete to those people that these machines were actually what needed to be focused on in a lot of the climate policy in the US, given that electrification of those machines is our principal strategy for mitigation, for climate mitigation now. They all have to be connected ultimately by a grid, which emphasises the importance of the grid. And just because you started that question with me as an engineer, I think it's really worth pointing out that I'd spent 20 years building technology companies, like you said, Makani. The biggest hurdle for Makani was getting FAA approval. In fact, the, we never got it. I've done solar companies, I've done HVAC companies, vehicle companies, all of the above. The longest, most difficult, most expensive piece of every energy-based startup that I've been involved in has been the regulatory hurdles and the regulatory burden. That's what got me into the game, got me into talking about the machines, because we need to quickly have policymakers and regulators even more so recognize that this is a game of machines and that we need to rewrite the regulations for the energy industry so that we can succeed. It's really transformed my thinking of the grid as one big machine made up of millions of little machines. I think you've you've calculated it's about 101 million machines that Australia is going to replace over the next generation. And these machines fall into broadly two categories, right? There's supply side and demand side. We, we talk a lot about supply side in, in Australia. Run us through that. But also, what do, you, what do you mean by this supply side? Well, this really was the whole reason to talk about the machines. So in energy conversations, people talk about supply side, where we get energy from. So tons of coal, cubic metres of natural gas, litres of petrol, but we rarely talk about the demand side in a policy. And Australia is very typical in the world in that we've really got to focus on where are we going to get this electricity from? What are we going to replace the coal with? The supply side of the conversation. But that conversation that I had with the US Senate in the US and through these books with the general public here in Australia is representing for the demand side machines. So in Australia, we have you know a few hundred coal mines and a few thousand coal trains and a few tens of thousands gas and oil wells about a million of those big supply side machines all told but the real story is the 100 million machines like you said 20 million cars 10 million households that each have a water heater and a space heater and a kitchen and we're often told about the hard to decarbonize sectors like steel etc but actually if you think about steel, there's pretty much one technology that all steel goes through, which is a blast furnace. We're going to have emissions, 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 and then we won't. 
because you know it's a it's a small number of investment decisions made about a small number of machines globally, and we now have a couple of prototype processes that can do green steel without emissions. And as soon as we turn them on, those emissions go to zero. So I'm actually now thinking that the harder part of this decarbonisation problem is this long tail of the hundred million machines that are parked in our driveways and sit in our homes, and how do we address those? The other reason to emphasise how important they are. In our domestic economy in Australia, so meaning the things that we do that aren't focused on exports, those machines in our households, our cars and our homes are 42% of emissions and in our small businesses and commercial sector, they're another 29. So actually the majority of our emissions are generated by this very large number of small machines. So really, I think they are in some respects the harder problem and we are behind schedule in addressing them in terms of hitting our climate outcomes. The book opens with the question that was put to the French playwright John Cocteau, suppose flames were consuming your home and time was precious, what's the one thing you'd carry away? And what did he respond with? He said, you you carry away the flames. <laughs> it's obvious in retrospect. Yeah. Don't grab the dog, and just take the flames away. A, a lot of the machines we have are going to be fine with us through the transition. The fundamental problem is the machines that burn stuff. That's the problem, right? Whether it's the coal power station where you put coal in and you get two things out, electricity and CO2. Uh, and then in your home, it's the hot water heater that you put gas in and you get two things out, hot water and CO2. And your car, you put petrol in and you get, again, transport and CO2. So it's it's not all the machines that are, that need to be replaced, right? It's, it's, it's the ones that turn fire into work. It's ones that turn fire into work. And I think five years ago, it would have been hard for the general public to believe that there was a satisfying replacement for their fossil-fueled machines. There's still a few diehard people clinging to their V8s, but I think most people can now see that the electric vehicles are good enough, go fast enough, are in fact an upgrade. Induction cooking scene has gone so far that most professional chefs actually now prefer to run on induction cooktops because they can run at what's called a cold kitchen. They don't have all the extra waste heat. So in nearly every example now, we have substitution machines that are all electric that are better. But because those as a solution set really only came into view in the last few years, we are now in an, you know the race of our lives and race for the planet to get those deployed at the speed and at the scale required to hit the climate targets we need to hit. In the last 13 years, we've gone from about 10% renewable to 36. And in the next 13 years, uh, we're likely to be up, up around 95% according to the energy market operator. So let's say that the on the generation side, we kind of know what we're doing, we're on the way. There's one important point there to be made. We didn't really plan for the demand side growth. Because we've had a supply-side strategy, most of the time when policymakers talk about having a green grid by 2035 or that 95%, they're thinking mostly of the grid we have today, not the tripling of electricity no. we need because we weren't thinking about what you do when you electrify all of the demand-side machines. So this is the criticality yeah, right. of bringing them into the conversation is I think a lot of countries, including the US, were in danger of trying to do this sequentially. Let's decarbonize the grid and then electrify the machines. What I'm hearing now is that we we actually already have all the technologies to carry the fire out of the home. There are no machines left in the home that need 
this bargain we have of of uh, turning fuel into work plus CO two. We've got machines that are every bit as good, if not, can I say better? Tell, tell us which you know, which the machines that people have in their home that they're going to be switching out over time. If I might, I'll also introduce a little little idea of what sort of blinded us. So the 1970s, we had Earth Day, and then that was quickly, that was the first big blossoming of the modern environmentalist movement. But it was shortly thereafter followed by the energy crisis of 1973, which was a supply-side crisis. America was missing 15% of its oil. Their response was to look around. They created the Department of Energy. They did the math, created a new thing called the Energy Information Administration, and concluded that to solve that supply-side crisis, you needed to reduce the amount of energy used for cars, so more efficient, smaller cars, and reduce the amount of energy for our appliances. And so that gave us the policy response of cafe fuel economy standards and of Energy Star appliances. And then the environmentalist movement latched onto that. And so the, the narrative of the environmentalist movement of, you know, if we all sacrifice a little bit more, we'll be slightly less fucked. It sort of has its origins <laughs> in that reduce, reuse, recycle. But of course, now on climate, you can't efficiency your way or reduce your way to zero. So you need the substitutions and then you need to think about that supply side. And it is now true that we have all of the machines. Bring it to your question, We've come from 20 or 30 years of the virtuous, environmentally friendly thing to do is recycle your drinking straws and have a stainless steel cup. But they are tiny, unimpactful decisions in the context of our carbon dioxide yep. and our, our climate. These machines that we talk about in your house, they are energy infrastructure. They're your own personal energy infrastructure. And you make those purchases as though they're infrastructure. Like every decade or so, you buy the car, you buy, you do the kitchen, you buy the water heater. And really the messaging of the book is to focus our minds in two ways. For the household, that this is your infrastructure and they're the investments that you can make. Now the good news is if you make those investments, the economic case for your household and your community is excellent. But it's also to focus the mind of government that we can no longer think about our energy system as things that people do over here and infrastructure like snowing. Because the batteries in your car, the generation of our solar on our roofs, they are going to be the largest generator and the largest battery in the grid. So they are literally deserving of the attention that we give infrastructure uh, and of the support that governments traditionally give infrastructure, including you know, greasing the regulatory skids to make it the best deal for Australia. You talked before about we can't efficiency our way to climate solutions, that recycling your, your soft plastics and having a keep cup do you ever come across David McKay? He was an excellent friend of mine and, and tragically died recently. The one quote that always stuck in my mind from him is that if we all do a little bit together, we're going to achieve a little bit. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. So so this is quite simple. We just all got to go out and buy new appliances and, and cars, right? That's pretty much the end of the story. 95% of cars that sold Today in Australia were ice vehicles, and I bet 95% of the hot water heaters that went in today were, were gas or inefficient electric. Why are consumers not doing this? How do we move forward? I think there's multiple aspects to why we're not doing it. One is cost. So electric vehicles, most people will know, 
they they still look and feel expensive. They, they call it a green premium. So you might pay an extra ten or fifteen thousand dollars for the electric car. You might pay an extra thousand or fifteen hundred dollars for the electric or the electric heat pump, water heater. You might pay a little bit more for all the pieces, and so it feels expensive and it's an upfront cost. The good news is the cost of those things are falling. The better news is if you had a you know if I waved the magic wand and Simon Holmes Accord had only a fully electric house and all electric cars tomorrow, your energy costs would go if you were the average Australian. So maybe I shouldn't use Simon Home Accord as the example, but the average Australian household spends seven thousand dollars a year on all their petrol, gas, and electricity today. If they had all electric things tomorrow, one point eight cars, the water heater, the space heater, the kitchen, they'd only pay about two thousand dollars. So the big question is. For the $5,000 difference, can you take out the loan and finance all of the pieces? For that to happen, the costs need to come down a little bit further, but it's widely predicted that the costs will be there by about 2026. Um, There's a thing in industrial cost estimates called learning curves. We know that every time we double the amount of solar we make, the cost falls 22%. Every time we double the number of batteries we make, the cost falls 25%. The learning curves are all going in the right direction. To solve or to get to zero emissions, we need 10 times more of all of these things. That's an amazing statement. It actually says that merely the act of solving climate change is going to cut the cost of the solutions by more than half. So it's about the speed at which we get all of these industries to scale because that's the thing that drives the cost reduction. That's good for the the healthy and wealthy end of town that can pay cash or can buy this on their credit card or can put it on the mortgage. My bigger concern now, um, and I think it's the political ask that I'm working on, is you don't half solve climate change by just helping the wealthy people go along for the ride. And that's why I used that word infrastructure when I was talking about those machines in the households earlier, so that you can intone the role of government in helping the other 50% of households get into that infrastructure. I think we need to be think very, very big as a nation and very ambitiously because not only is that how we hit our emissions goals, but that's actually how we help the households in Australia that are in the most need, that feel the energy insecurity. They can, they, they could make far better use of those economic savings from electrification than we can, but they're going to be left, you know, left out of the game unless we figure out financing mechanisms to help them get there. We did this with solar, right? There was a time not long ago where it cost a ridiculous amount of money to put solar on your roof. I remember um, visiting a solar farm that was $12 a watt for installation and now it's sort of 60 cents a watt in Australia for large scale. But on people's homes, it originally, when it first came out, it was, you know, rich people, sort of criticism, it was rich people virtue signaling. Very quickly, though, once we had the solar, the small scale solar part of the of the renewable energy target called the SRES, that coincided and probably played a role in helping solar come down the cost curve to the point now where Lower socioeconomic suburbs have massive take-up. Retirees have massive take-up, and you're kind of burning money uh, if you don't. So we've done it. We've done it before, right? Australia's good at this stuff, but we've also had this dynamic before where government has helped unlock massive demand. I talk about this one a lot because, quite frankly, America needs to have the revolution of solar in Australia. I just that the ill-fated house in San Francisco. It cost me five dollars. 80 US per watt to install solar. 
that's at least eight or nine times what I would pay here. So the solar is not cheaper than the grid there. In fact, only you know, not not even in half of the states is rooftop solar cheaper. It's marginal. But it's worth pointing out there was a bunch of great things that happened there. The STC systems we had and the feed-in tariffs that we allowed that helped get scale. But part of it was, unlike America, we we figured out how to do workforce training and sort of a deregulation at the same time. In the US, if you go to buy solar, you've got to get a permit. The permit takes three months. You then have to get the installer that come. Then you have to get a, an inspector to come and inspect. In Australia, we streamlined that permitting. So it's sort of done over the phone digitally. The inspection is really done in concert with the fact that we've got very high confidence in the solar installers because we've run high quality training. So we did workforce development, sort of regulatory optimization and cost reduction all at the same time for rooftop solar. And really, there's still regulatory optimization that we can do that will help lower the cost of the electric vehicles and their charging systems. There's still regulatory optimization we can do around incentivizing households to put larger solar systems in and larger batteries in. So we are good at it. And now we just have to do more of that. We have to do we have to do it quickly. You know, another one of these um, areas where Australia has taken, where the government has allowed people to make very long-term investments without making those just available to wealthier Australians is the HEX system, right, where we pay deferred payment for education. You've been playing around with some of these ideas for machines as well, right? Even better, I'm actually working with an economist named Bruce Chapman. He was instrumental in designing the HEX system. And we're trying to figure out what is a sufficiently ambitious sort of policy response to help Australian households get to zero. And, you know, HEX wasn't perfect, no policy is, but it it is the envy of the world in terms of its success in education funding, much better than the US system. It means we're now graduating about 40% of Australians with a degree instead of 10%. So we've hugely increased the the volume. And the genius behind it, it was called an income contingent loan. So you don't pay back the loan until your income is sufficiently high that you can afford to. So it doesn't put you under the worst kinds of debt servitude and, and trap you. So if you're if you're paying off your hex but you get sick, you can defer it. You you've got all of these options to make it work. And it looks like you could do something like that for households for this electrification journey and because it leverages so much private capital it actually looks like the cheapest way that the the government could help sort of a literal tidal wave of electrification of our households in a cost-effective way for the country and if you 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 look at the numbers the government might need to invest 30 or 40 billion dollars this decade to release what looks like you know three or four hundred million dollars in household savings next decade so the investment case is excellent, but the traditional banks won't be able to help everyone get there. So we need to have some new financial instrument that is at least as ambitious as HEX. So I'm you know, not an economist, so I'm tiptoeing around the exact details, but I, I think what I'm really trying to encourage and what the book is trying to encourage is like Australia, if we are to hit our climate goals, if which I think is critical for us to do it fast and early because we're going to show the rest of the world how to do it. We need equally ambitious uh, finance and policy ideas to our technology ideas. 
I love that. So it's it's a great return on investment. It saves people a lot of money. The government can do it in a way that doesn't it doesn't end up being a drag on you know their finances, and we get to decarbonize at the same time. Well, in one way, this is a consumer led transition in that people will be making their own investment decisions when they buy new machines and they're going to it's going to be the most economically rational thing is to buy the machine that saves you money and saves emissions so i can see how the government has a role here how do we get it happening at the street level you've you've focused a lot in your essay on the role of the community an area where you know, i've been spending a lot of time in the last two three years i think the community emphasis on this book is is a little bit the journey of the three books i've written on climate in the last three years. Electrify was giant macroscopic policy. There's actually a journalist from The Atlantic who who recognised, he said, oh, this is a sneaky piece of public policy. What does the American economy as a whole need to do to hit its climate targets? And then the big switch covered really a similar big economic opportunity for Australia argument and then teased, you know, why Australia at household level does the best. But what I really wanted to connect to was communities in this essay, because if you really think about the layers of government that you have, like federal governments can make big policy announcements and they can spend money, but they don't actually do the implementation on the ground of achieving those emissions reductions. That actually ends up being the job of the household and the local community, including the city council. And in fact, it is our local communities and councils that still dictate a lot of the zoning laws and the building codes and the permittings and other aspects that can either make this project for the nation cheaper or more expensive, including policies around strata and renters and making sure that we have solutions that fill out for everyone in the community. So... I've tried to dangle out the carrot for the communities in the book and I can speak to it in terms of my own community. I live in postcode 2515, which is six suburbs south of Sydney, just north of Wollongong. We have about 4,000 households. They spend about $20 million a year right now on all of their fossil fuels, including $14-odd million a year on petrol and diesel. We could easily generate three-quarters or even 100% of all of our electricity requirements and if we were doing so, in effect, you know, running our own vehicles on our own sunshine, when the vehicles are electric, running our own households on our own sunshine, you would actually be keeping the lion's share of that $14 million in your community. And then traditional economic theory says the households aren't going to sit on that and save it all. We're going to spend it in a lot of ways. And 55% of the spending happens in your community. So that's really an argument and the carrot to be waved that if we do this right, this is the biggest opportunity for economic renewal on the ground, right? Imagine a community is like with 4,000 households is saving $10 million a year. It's like you run out of new football fields and surf clubs to build after about the third year, right? Oh, we put 15 new classrooms and six new teachers in. So what do we do now? I think we need to wave that carrot and then we need to wave that carrot because of the remaining fights. We still don't have an electricity market in Australia that incentivizes the household to put more solar than they need to help, you know, my car doing vehicle to grid powering your cup of tea tomorrow morning. We need to change the rules and the incentives so that we get that right. 
honestly, the biggest piece of space in your community where these assets are going to sit that isn't owned by the household is owned by the city. It's the car parking spaces that are owned by the city. It's the transport corridors that are owned by the city or by Transport New South Wales. It's the school buildings. It's the city buildings. And we need to intone all of those assets so that we have the cars are out when they're out during the day, they're charging. You know, so that's why trying to connect this to community, trying to see how communities will work together to achieve it and what they have to win was really the goal for this particular essay. And partly, and I think this is where your question was going, so I'm, stop me if I'm rude in being presumptuous, but <laughs> I think you inspired me a little showing that community, in fact, I a lot of the essay talks about some of the independence that you've helped and I spent a lot of time with those independents and realised that it, they have a new kind of community politics in this country and they're doing an extraordinary job, these independents, of representing communities and getting the interests of communities represented in the policy conversations. I don't think we get the climate policy or the level amb ambition that we just said unless we have retail demand from communities that are willing to show up and actually change the politics of the country. So... The other aspect of this essay is it's a call to arms. Yeah, one thing I, I love about the story is you, 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 there's sort of a bit of travelogue in it that you're, you're talking about going around to these communities and you met the folks up in Yakandanda. You notice something that I've noticed is that the people getting stuff done, the people bringing these communities together for these ambitious projects, um, overwhelmingly women. Uh, you, know, you note that in your book and I've certainly noted it too. I noticed it, but I was travelling with a wonderful woman and sort of Australian feminist, my own mother, and she pointed this out. I can't remember. We were stopped to get a haircut or something in some town on the Murray, and there was a, a chapter of the Country Women's Association there. And she said to me something along the lines of, you know, it's not at all surprising that it's women getting this work done in Australia because it's always been women in Australia who organise communities for the changes that they need. It was the Country Women's Association that got the lines painted on their roads so that the road safety went up. They've done a huge amount of organising at community level and they, you know, in a big unruly country, they've sort of tamed it and made it civilised. And I think that's a little bit of the aspect of why I think we're seeing women do it. And I think the other aspect is, sadly, men still have their ego involved in the B8s. Women don't really care as long as the car gets us to school and does all the jobs. I'm, they're more concerned about it, it working and being safe. And then I, I think we still have, you know, there are still people denying the climate science, people who are still promoting non-solutions to energy. But it's because they don't want to admit that the thing they've been saying for 30 years is wrong. That's a very male thing to do. So I think we've got these women who are like, well, the grey suits fucked it all up, now we have to roll up our sleeves and fix it again, just like the Country Women's Association fixes things. So I'm I'm encouraged and I'm, I actually, I think we need that. That's the organisational metal of the, the political army we need to, for the climate response we need. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm really inspired by it and the new ways of working and new optimism, egoless organising um, are all really refreshing to be, to be involved in. Last question for you. So uh, I, I remember as a kid that Australia used to used to be a test market. Sometimes a film would be shown down here before it had its release in the US and they might change the ending or um, a product, you know, um, 
one of the big you know, Procter and Gamble companies would release a new shampoo down here, see how it went, and then it would make its way to the US after some product changes. I'm super excited that you're you're putting your attention on Little Old Australia. It feels a lot like yeah, with your repowering 2515 idea of having small areas show how it can be done. We we can again Australia can again be a test market that shows the world how how it's done. That seems it seems to be some of what's inspiring. Yeah, there's two aspects to that, and that's a more elegant answer to why am I enjoying being in Australia right now. I think if we are really honest with ourselves, and we should be, you probably don't have a single friend who truly has got to zero emissions. Like we actually don't know how to do it in a single household, let alone a single community. And there's still little pieces of technology, like the home energy management systems are clunky and feel like using Unix the vehicle to grid technologies aren't working. We don't have the correct rule sets for governing the the sale of electricity from neighbor to neighbor. So if we wait for the wizards up high to dictate how it's all going to work, it's going, we're going to take too long. So I think we need experiments run in every community. This is one aspect of the community running these trials and pilots in communities. So we're running more experiments so we figure it out sooner. The giant big picture version of that is I do the economics of this transition for households in North America, Europe and Asia and Australia. And it is absolutely clear that Australia has the cleanest, easiest run on on the economics. There's four reasons really that drive that. We have a low population density and extraordinary renewables. So that makes the generation easy and cheap. We've got a mild climate, which makes the heat pumps uh, more efficient and the level of heating, household heating we need lower than, for example, in the US. And the incumbent fuels here are more expensive than in North America and Europe. So the our, our petrol is 50% more expensive than American gasoline. Our natural gas is 50% more expensive than American natural gas. So the incumbent's more expensive, we've got cheaper renewables, um, and we've got a milder climate. So the economic transition for this in Australia, it happens in 2024, 2025. In fact, for some households, it's already. In the US, it'll be 2028 or 2030. And in the Europe, it'll be 2032. So I think we have this opportunity to go first. And if we figure out those rules and we do a good job and we can advertise to America, for example, hey, you know, you want to drive those big electric trucks you have cheaply. What you really need to do is the regulatory innovation that gives you dollar or what rooftop solar. So we have an extraordinary opportunity to actually influence the speed of the global response on climate by virtue of we are the prototype. We are there yep. at the starting gate first. You know, if we could have a perfect country, we'd have America's trucks, we'd have Australia's rooftop solar and I'd have, I'd have South Korea's heat pumps. Um, but in lieu of that, I think, you know, we Australia is the country to, that we get to run this experiment first. I think that's huge. And so with a government program no more ambitious than HEX or the renewable energy target before it, with a very good return on investment for communities, for households, for for government. Yeah, it seems it seems like a no-brainer, but it hasn't been on the agenda to date that the um yeah, the industries that are part of this have have not been anywhere near as uh, savvy as as those uh, the industries that want us to keep the fires going in in our households and in the big machines that power the network. So I really um, I think we're incredibly privileged as Australians, incredibly incredibly fortuitous that the global events brought you back to Australia, and we've 
got your attention on this and that you are inspiring communities to organise uh, and put that pressure, create examples in our community and create examples for the world. So I'd um, like to uh, recommend that everyone goes out and gets a copy of Quarterly Essay and make sure as many people as you can get to read it and understand how simple really this, this idea is uh, and the role both us uh, as community members, but um, also the government that will unlock this opportunity, this necessity for Australia. So thank you very much, Saul, for writing it and for putting your attention on Australia. We're, we're, very, we're very lucky for that attention. Let's uh, let Australia's example be lucky for the world. That's what we really need. Once again, the lucky country. Quarterly Essay 89, The Wise That Bind, as well as all previous editions of the Quarterly Essay, Available from all reading stores, as well as their website, where you can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast. You'll also find all kinds of other recommendations, great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news, but receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of the show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past and present. Thank you.